0: Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what He wants to do in your life.
1: Get a little personal here for a moment. In my 40 years as a child of God, And under the teaching of Jesus, I've learned a lot from the king of teachers. But much of what I've heard, I've not really put into practice. To put it another way, much of what I have heard, seen, and read, teachers, you'll love this, goes in one ear and out the other. In fact, as I reflected on the text today, I know there are times when my heart is like that of the Sadducees in the first section. And then, sadly, I'm so guilty of not obeying the greatest commandments or the law of love delivered by the king. And like me, when you reflect on the message today and Jesus' teaching, you may recognize some shortcomings in your life. But my objective today is not to put us on a guilt trip. Instead, hopefully help all of us to see the need to learn from the king and seek to grow to be more like him. So let's dig in. Verse 18 again. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married with the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose life will she be? Whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? First, let's note that the Sadducees addressed the king as teacher. And next, a little bit of background that I found as I dug into the Sadducees. They were small. They were powerfully and politically strong. They were wealthy and sophisticated. They were involved in the temple administration, and some of the Sadducees were actually a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were against the Pharisees and common Jewish believers. In other words, they were outliers in the Jewish faith. The message uh, version of the Bible in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase, meticulous moralist. I think that kind of fits this elitist group, the Sadducees. And in my NIV commentary, it describes the Sadducees as more worldly and politically minded, theologically unorthodox. Again, outliers. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus called both the Sadducees and the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And it's also worth noting that Mark emphasizes a key tenet of the Sadducees' beliefs, and that is they say there is no resurrection. We'll have more on that in a moment. And they also accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses or the Pentateuch. Two additional points on this part of the text. It's interesting that the Sadducees prefaced their scenario of the seven brothers with the phrase, Moses wrote for us. Again, emphasis there on Moses. Then they call out a law from the Old Testament called the Leverite Law. I'll not get into that, but it's in uh, Deuteronomy 25, and it goes into specifying this whole brother-in-law thing and the duty of him. Let's move on to chapter or verse 24. Jesus says, Are you not an heir because you do not know the Scriptures? or the power of God, I say, ouch. Jesus tells them they have two major truths wrong. They do not know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God because they reject the resurrection. Double ouch. In reviewing this with Pastor Josh, he suggested it would be helpful to consider why the Sadducees took this approach. If scriptures and the power of God are minimized, What is it they gain? He went on to say it's essentially humanism. This life, human relationships, and their own authority are elevated because there is no giving account to God after death, thus rejecting the scripture that is difficult or maybe the scripture that humbles us, and resisting the need for faith in things unseen and reduce reality to just what is seen was the approach, perhaps, of the Sadducees. Again, maybe stating the obvious, but I take it to mean they rejected the rest of the Old Testament, be it good, bad, ugly, insightful, helpful, maybe hard to swallow, or just tough to hear. Which, if we look around us, we note, our world tends to be that way, doesn't it? We tend to ignore or reject parts of the Bible or rules that we don't like or that make us uncomfortable, which gave me cause to pause and wonder, what are the things in the Bible that make me uncomfortable? Well, maybe do not judge others, take the plank out of my own eye, or some neighbors are really hard to love but I'm jumping ahead. And a few notes from commentaries regarding the power of God that's mentioned in this verse. A new order of existence brought by God's power. The resurrection life will bring with it a little different from what we now know. And another commentary says, God not only creates a new order, but also defines relationships in the hereafter. Let's go on to verse 25. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Please listen. Jesus, the king, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the word in the flesh demonstrates his authority. The dead will rise. Resurrection is real. Heaven is real. Angels are real. And thus, by this, he defies the Sadducees' beliefs. I really like the commentary from Bible Panorama on this point. It says, Jesus teaches them about the nature of heaven. Additional points I glean from this passage. I take this to mean there will not be marriage in heaven. And frankly, this is a little hard to grasp. Carrie and I have been married over 41 years. Mom and Dad Hilton celebrated their 68th anniversary in February. While I and we want to believe, Mom and Dad Hilton, or Carrie and I, will be reunited as a couple in heaven when we look at the scripture and this passage. It's clear that isn't so. But I suggest we should consider the relationships and the experiences in heaven will be even better than the best, the longest the most enduring marriages. And Pastor Josh suggested that this teaching from Jesus puts marriage in a staggering new light. So listen to this. This is the good news. It's meant to point us to our union with Christ as it is laid out in Ephesians 5, where Jesus is the head and the church, big C, is his bride. Jesus also confirms that risen believers will be like angels or we will have similar qualities to angels in our heavenly state. How cool is that? I'm looking forward to that. But before I move on, I feel compelled to reemphasize Jesus' authority and what he says in this verse relative to us as believers and how I believe we need to respond. If we say we believe in Jesus in the good news we call the gospel, that he is God in the flesh, born of a virgin, died and resurrected, then we should not gloss over the importance of these few words in terms of the world we live in and the naysayers around us. We should be prepared to stand up to those naysayers when the opportunity strikes. The dead will rise. Resurrection is real. Real. Heaven is real. Angels are real. Let's move on. Verse 26, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Remember I mentioned they pointed that out themselves. In the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of dead, but God of the living, you are badly mistaken. I like how Luke puts it in the parallel story. Even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we might restate that phrase like this. In your short-sighted view, and only recognizing the books of Moses, you are still wrong, Sadducees. I like the King James commentary that says Jesus places a great deal of weight on the grammar in Exodus 3.6. He says, God said, I am, despite the fact that the patriarchs had died long before he spoke those words to Moses. Thus, the only authority recognized by the Sadducees points to the fact of life after death. Another commentary, Ashbury says that Jesus' reply strikes at the root of the belief system that the resurrection is not mentioned in the first five books and points out their ignorance of the scriptures. Another commentary suggests that God's covenant to Moses is without meaning if it is canceled by death. So let's go back to a couple of those questions from the beginning. How well did the Sadducees know Scripture? Did the Sadducees have a grasp on the full power of God? I think not. Jesus, the teacher, teaches the Sadducees a lesson. Or as it is written by Matthew in his parallel passage, Jesus silenced the Sadducees. Okay, let's move on to the second part. The second story in our text today, verse 28 One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked of him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? A couple of observations as I unpack verse 28. The first thing we see is a teacher comes to the teacher. And more specifically, he was referred to as a teacher of the law. Elsewhere, he was called an expert of the law or the, one of the religion scholars. And the next thing it says in the verse 28 is, he heard them debating, which begs the question, who was debating? And I think it's very simply and, again, straightforward. This man had clearly just heard the debate between the Sadducees and Jesus. It's also noteworthy, I think, that Mark records the question as, of all the commandments, which is the most important whereas Matthew says, which is the greatest commandment? And just to put a little context to this, commentary says that the Jewish rabbis counted 613 individual statutes of the law. And they tried to differentiate those that were heavy and those were light. And this guy comes up and says, which one is the most important? But Jesus had an answer, didn't he? Verse 29, the most important one Jesus said is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to pause there with that and just break that down a little bit. First, or before providing an answer, Jesus gets their attention. You see, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is a phrase called the Shema. And it means to hear in Hebrew. And I promise you that's as deep as I'm going to get in that Hebrew-Greek stuff, Okay. Um, But it's actually a citation from Deuteronomy 6. And it became the Jewish confession of faith. It was recited by pious Jews every morning and evening and still begins every synagogue service. The Jewish learning commentary says, the centerpiece of the daily morning and evening prayer services, considered by some the most essential prayer in all of Judaism, easy for me to say, regarded by observant, Jews as a Biblical commandment. It's also cited at the climatic moment of the final prayer of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, and traditionally as the last words before death. It's also recited with the hands placed over the eyes. Very important, and Jesus used this to set up the answer to which is the most important commandment. I think it's profound that he used this to get their attention. And now in verse 30, he answers that question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. Again, back to the Jewish commentary, it says this. The reply that Jesus gives details the particular ways in which faith should be lived. I really like that. Ways in which faith should be lived. So then, how do we love God? We follow the ways of King Jesus. We know scripture. We know God. And we pray like Jesus. And when I type these words in my notes, the mental picture of Jesus praying at the Garden of Gethsemane came to mind. Oh, if we could only pray like that. And then there is no greater love or act of obedience than what Jesus did on the cross. And then I'm reminded that Jesus himself said to take up our cross and follow him. So then to know God will change our hearts, transformation. If we know him and love him, we will not live contrary to his heart. In other words, will have a heart like Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus continues. The second greatest commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Let's look at James 2.8. It says this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right doesn't get more straightforward than that does it my commentary calls it the law of love the supreme law that is the source of all other laws governing human relationships in his daily devotional god with us my favorite devotional author chris tygreen Provides what I think are several nuggets for us to ponder regarding regarding this loyal law royal law or law of love. He says this the rule of God is intended to be deeply internal. He desires transformed hearts, and the transformation he seeks most is the transformation of love. But in spite of our familiarity with the law of love, we don't quite fulfil it as we should. We may take a lifetime of trying, but we have to admit that our natural tendency is to love ourselves, our families, and our friends first, and then get our neighbors as we are able. We don't easily turn our focus outward, but it's the law. And more than that, it's the heart of God. It's what Jesus demonstrated for us on that cross. And as we take the communion later, John Hooper, an English martyr from the 1500s, says, The love of man necessarily arises out of the love of God. Another question How do we love our neighbor? Answers the same follow the ways of Jesus. Specific ways include heart transformation, as noted above. And then we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Lots of powerful stuff in there about how to love, isn't there? And then the result of loving like Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, exuding from us fruit that we bear. More from Chris Tigreen. He says this, mercy, grace, hospitality are all ways to love our neighbor. And regarding hospitality, Tigering goes on and says, we need to think about this, church. People almost always attribute their visiting a church to an invitation, a personal invitation. And overwhelmingly, the reason people come to faith in Christ is because someone they know demonstrated Christ. In most cases, this means they demonstrated love and mercy. They were hospitable like Christ. And of course, another way to love your neighbor is to pray. Pray for individuals that God puts in your path. Pray for invitation. Pray for grace and mercy, perhaps, for yourself and them. And Before I move on, A thought came to me just this morning. If anyone here or online feels like a neighbor, needing grace, needing mercy, needing prayer, please step out to someone today. We will be glad to pray with you and love on you. Back to the red letters in Jesus' spoken word, verse 31b, the second part, he says, there is no commandment greater than these. He drives it home. No other commandment is greater than these. It's plural. And it came to mind, they are like a two-sided coin. The greatest commandment coin. Love God and love your neighbor. And again, I hope I've unpacked for you. You can't really do one without the other. Moving on, verse 32, the expert in the law replies and says, Well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Pastor Josh reminded me, and I should pass this along, that this gets to some of the critique of the Pharisees and other leaders and previous texts that we've been studying, doing lots of things for God while our hearts are not with him. It's possible to offer sacrifices and do churchy things or avoid bad things, if you will, but not have the hearts that treasure or cherish God. A couple of weeks ago, we covered the cleansing of the temple and the courts there. That's one example. And last week, we believed Jesus was speaking directly to the Pharisees and the other leaders in the parable of the vineyard who were acting but not really living a worshipful life. And regarding the scholar's comment at the end of that phrase, the importance of burnt offering, offerings and sacrifices, there are several Old Testament references that I think are noteworthy. 1 Samuel 15, says, Obey is better than sacrifice, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Isaiah 1:11 says, "The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? What are they to me," says the Lord. And Hosea 6:6 6, 6 says, "I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings." offerings. Micah says, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. This scribe, like some of the in the Old Testament, realized, just some, uh, realized that the heart commitment and obedience out of gratitude to God were of utmost importance. God cannot be bribed into accepting us if we do not have the heart to devote ourselves to him. Last verse, 34. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. A few more points from commentaries. Jesus meant that the scribe was not far from entering the kingdom. His openness to scriptural revelation and his positive orientation to Jesus, if continued, would bring him to the faith in Jesus and ultimately entrance into the kingdom. Calvin's commentary says he skillfully distinguished the outward worship of God from necessary duties. And I like Barclay's study Bible. They said there must have been a look of love in Jesus' eyes. And a look of appeal as he said to him you have gone so far will you not come further and accept my way of things then you will be a true citizen of the kingdom
0: thank you for tuning in to the call road baptist church podcast We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a -A K-A-R-L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that, so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.